0: Yeah, it's your boy Ray Ray on the mic. Let's go. What up, OTM listeners? It's your boy Ray White from On the Mic with Ray White. And I'm here to bring to you all an interview for a podcast that I was on called the E1B2 Collective, hosted by Anthony A.J. Vaughn. This podcast is really dope. If you are a people leader, if you are a C-suite executive, if you're somebody who has some level of institutional power and want to create change from an employee first business second mentality aj brings some great insights and thoughts and people to the podcast to talk about all the things that it takes to create a more diverse equitable and belonging culture within an organization and how to do it in from an entrepreneurial and or uh, just a business perspective and I'm very grateful that you had me on the podcast just to talk about what does it look like to be a DEI practitioner and how to create a belonging culture. And what I want to do to y'all is bring you this full podcast, but break it up into two parts. And so this episode is going to be part one of my conversation with AJ and I had a blast and want you to all follow AJ on LinkedIn where he's very active as well as give a subscription to the E1B2 Collective Podcast Two, which I'll drop both of those in the show notes so you can check out that work and continue to be a great leader in this space of bringing blogging culture. So, without further ado, here is part one of my conversation with AJ, and let me know what y'all think. All
1: right, brother, I appreciate this. Um, I know it's been a long time coming, easily months. Uh, I think the first interaction. I was um, running a bunch of errands for my my wife, and I was on the road, and I kept cutting in and out, and um, and then I canceled a bunch of times, and then we finally had a great official kind of intro chat, and then um, here we are now. So I very much appreciate you doing this. Let's start this way. Why don't you tell the world, all the people, folks that are listening, 90 seconds who you are, what you're about, uh, and kind of what your focus are right now, and then we'll hop in.
0: Yeah, man. AJ, I appreciate you having me on the podcast, man. Love your journey. Love the work that you're putting out there, making the world better, man. Um, you won't be too collective. Shout out to y'all, man. Y'all doing great work. <laughs> um, yeah, man. My name is uh, Ray White. I am a DEI leadership consultant and coach. Uh, a lot of the work that I do is helping create belonging communities where every identity belongs and thrives. So talking with executive leaders, talking to teams and staff, and asking the questions of what does it look like for us to create a belonging culture um, and our behaviors and our actions, but then also have it be institutional as a part of our policies, practices, just the way that we do work, Um, because it's truly important for us to thrive in this space.
1: I love that. I love that. And, um, overall how long have you been doing it because i just found out that you're not the age that i thought you were you're actually my <laughs> age. we're actually the same exact age when, when, yeah. when, you, when uh, what month were you born yeah april
0: april oh, okay. 1990 yeah
1: january so okay okay um, but uh so how long have you been doing this this work
0: yes so, so i've i've been active in this work i would say um it's one of those things where it's like i my life experience shows up in this way, right? I, uh, for folks who are listening, I am identify as Black, African-American, um, yes, uh, and a millennial as well. Uh, and so uh, a lot of what I do and how I show up in the world has this equity lens in how I approach it. Um, so through my education, I uh, graduated with sociology and American ethnic studies as my minor, and then taking active roles that are centered on uh, shoring up any social inequities in our communities um and it wasn't until probably the pivotal moment that we all the world halted right through pandemic and george floyd's murder that um realizing how strong my voice has been in this space and just the people that i'm building relationships with and so started taking active steps to be an advocate in this way uh for the past three to two to three years uh for four years really um of speaking of uh, holding space, facilitating conversations that are on this work. Um, and I would say it's probably ex- everything is accelerated, especially in the last two to three years, As more and more organizations are finding people to help navigate them through the social justice anti-racist journey.
1: I love that. I love that. And, and I think here's, where I'm going to go with this during, yeah. during the last three to four years, what do you think has been the biggest learning curve for you? Um, And I think it's a little bit of a different question because I think a lot of, you're very similar to me and we're, I'm assuming based off of your overall background and what you do day to day um, with your current role and even things that you did previous to this role, um, you're kind of a self-taught practitioner versus kind of growing up. In the world of HR, from the lens of you get out of you know get out of you know university, you get a um, you get a generalist job or a recruiting job, and then you kind of work your way up through all the different elements of HR. Um, what do you think has been the biggest the the biggest or the steepest learning curve?
0: Yeah, I like you said, I don't have my degree or any type of connection to the HR world. But I found that I've been doing a lot of HR things. (laughs) Um, And uh, so from a positional standpoint and just real quick from a career perspective, graduated, as you stated, we did. uh, I was an assistant program manager for a a nonprofit literacy program in Oregon. And so through that work. I was volunteer management and being able in that. So when you think about HR and language and connection, so learning how to navigate with people and managing the work and managing the people in the work Um, and then transition to uh, the healthcare industry uh, within the healthcare institution here in Oregon um, as a IT supervisor. And through that lens, having to learn what are all the things that HR is asking for our employees and for me to lead my staff. In addition to the work itself, uh, making sure that the work is happening smoothly and effectively. Um, but the learning curve, especially when it comes to integrating or, or having the lens of diversity, equity, inclusion with the HR work is that it has to be integrated um, in order for it to be successful. And too often, especially in the last four, three to four years or prior to that, honestly, um, the, just the idea of diversity, equity, inclusion has always been standalone, its own department or person or somebody like an administrator right that doesn't have institutional power trying to help initiate these initiatives for um, all of our social identities and then again once in the last three to four years seeing the rise of chief uh, cdo's and roles that do have the institutional power but it's still a little bit siloed and what i'm hoping to and it's not just my voice, there are many voices out there that are saying we need to integrate yours included, right? You have a bunch of podcasts that talk about integrating this DEIB lens into the work that we're doing um, in our, in our KPA, KPIs and OKRs and just the way that we're building culture. Um, what I'm noticing is that that is necessary if we want to retain our staff, or as necessary if we want uh, to diverse our staff um, to the people that we're supplying and the people that we are uh, creating a a, a healthier culture, a healthier environment, um, it needs to have that lens mixed in together and integrated together. Um, And people are asking, how do we do that? (laughs) It's like, okay, cool. Like this institution has been around for a hundred (laughs) years. It hasn't thought about it then is now we're thinking about it. Now we're forced to think about it. Now we should. Um, so the learning curve is how do you have the language of his of uh, longevity, institutional uh, ways of doing work uh, from a status quo lens and truly the EI breaking that mold and asking us to do life differently. And the change curve is hard. People are people's perspectives and their journey is uh, are at different levels. And you, the difficulty is how do you move everybody um in lockstep towards that vision of a multicultural and a belonging culture,
1: yeah, yeah that that was well said and and i and i I think for d e i and b, I think really, for h r and leadership period, what I've realized recently is that um, even if a brand is large, mm-hmm. right. Um, large from a revenue perspective, large from a brand perspective, a PR perspective, um, an impact perspective. What I've realized, and this is going to sound crazy, so please follow me. This is going to sound great. Let's go. Um, and anyone out here that wants to debate, or maybe you might want to debate this, but um, I'll, I'll I'll kind of preface it with this first. You know, I started as a business person first. A lot of people, when they see E1B2, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, Anthony AJ. He's someone that's going to over-index on loving and supporting and caring about employees and totally forget about the business, whatever the case is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, let me be on the record by saying I started out my career building from 19 to 25. I built companies. I I didn't even um, I didn't even touch. Uh, people operations leadership inside of a company as a role or being that person um, individually, you mm-hmm. know, behind the scenes. Around twenty one, twenty two, I definitely started researching and studying. So I'm looking at about ten years now in total. But but let's not get it twisted here. I really am a business person first. So when I say what I'm going to say, please remember that. Um, what i realized is that you can build a huge business without doing anything innovative on the people side. And
0: mm-hmm. I know
1: that's a big, crazy statement. You can build a massive business without having any policies or best practices that are incredibly inclusive, or um, you can have you can build a huge company without doing any innovations on the human capability side, recruiting side. There, there are companies out here that have been around for 90 years, 100 years, that are doing billions of dollars in revenue a year that still use, like what's some, I don't even know. They still use like, I can't even think of something. Like I'm trying to think of something so simplistic. Um, yeah, I'm I'm pausing. The, I'm stalling the episode. The point is, I can't even come up with an example. Um, but there are companies that are huge that still use very old school or remedial best practices in HR that have made that have massive businesses. There are companies that churn. Uh, amazing talent out. And just because of their status and brand equity, they're 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 they' are they're able to replace that amazing talent. So I say yeah. that to say this, it is possible to build a massive, massive, massive business without innovating a lot of this work. But I think there's enough data that shows when you do a lot of the work that you and I both do, the businesses that do versus the businesses that are not, trumps those other organizations right so if your goal is to build a billion dollar business you can do that now there's a ton of people on record that do not believe that's true anymore i believe you can i know you can but i guarantee the same company with the same people with the same products and services and the same marketplace in the same industry if they were to apply a lot of the work that you and i do could build an incredibly Massive business that trumps that other business. So, if they're doing a billion in revenue, they could easily do three or four billion
0: in revenue with yeah. some of this work. Um, so yeah, which I to speak to here. that. Yeah. I don't want to necessarily debate you. Like I agree. <laughs> like yeah. folks out here making money, <laughs> not having to care about their people, right? And and even in the way that technology is moving with AI and um, helping with a lot of the repetitive jobs that folks are taking on or doing. Um, you know, you're gonna see more and more of just that speed in which that work can be or revenue can be generated through technology, right? So um, so more and more that's going to happen, and even in the antiquated HR systems where you just have the basic um, legal aspects of HR, and then everything else is just kind of through the wind. Um, but then the question turns into uh, ethics. <laughs> uh, the question then turns into longevity or, or even just... Um, Uh, brand record or name recognition or just the Mm -hmm. reputation uh, reputation that the organization holds um because i mean as a species we're not going anywhere for a while so um if if we do not like you said do the work that we are doing um yes you can make a billion but at what cost like what what human or social Mm -hmm. capital cost will you be losing if the only goal is to make the money um and some sadly there are people in the world that does have that lens but um, I do think, from a social responsibility and um, aspect, when it comes to the work, we got to find a way to marry the two. And I think that's you know, essentially, you talked about the bit. You came from a business side. I'm definitely coming from the people side into this work uh, and having to learn business along the way. So it's just fascinating, engaging. You know, you and others who have that business sense, and I'm always like, okay, how do you think? Because I love that, and then so I can embody that while. What does it look like to, uh, you know, what other folks who have that business sense but maybe lacking the people side? How yeah. do we encourage those skill sets to say, if you just do this little thing in your one-on-ones, it will have exponential growth and the people trusting you as mm-hmm. an example, you know? So, yeah, yeah, That's no,
1: this. I I agree, I agree with all of that, and 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 I and I brought that whole rant up, and I started this little this little moment here is because, um, what I've been noticing. Recently, and you being someone that's, you know, again, five, six years into this work, and myself being someone that's over a decade into this work, relatively mm-hmm. small doses of time compared to a lot of I'm sure our mentors and other folks here. Um, what I've been noticing and, and 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 what I do actually allows me the luxury to do this, right? Because I'm at the center of so many different initiatives where um what I'm finding is that every single company and we talked about this offline, I think I said, this is in Mm -hmm. a different stage of being able to embrace and understand like I've talked to, I won't call anyone to help. I have talked to C-suite and VP level HR people that sit in enterprise level companies, Mm -hmm. um, companies that have thousands of employees, that, that that individual I know for a fact, because I just know the salary and numbers there in the ranges, most likely, without a doubt, getting over 200000 close to a quarter of a million dollars a year for their work, that are not educated enough. And this is no knock on them. They, they just have never developed the skill, the desire, the wherewithal mm-hmm. to learn things like Again, I'll do some quick plugs like what, what's happening with all this insight with the human capability stuff or what's happening with AI and how it can impact some things in DE&I or some of these amazing, amazing recruiting firms and technologies and tools that are built just to understand how to remove as much bias as possible in the interview process um, or how to make thoughtful partnerships and relationships with, with job boards that are exclusively with hmm. with African-American or people of color um backgrounds and things of that nature, like it's not that they're ignorant. It's not that they're not educated. It's not that they don't know all of the traditional c-suite level HR best practices. It's that there's a there's wide ranges and gaps of desires to learn yeah. what's out there now, you know, and, I, and I'm just, and, and I'll let you go real quick. I, I just found this out probably over the last six months. I like guess finally, for whatever reason, hitting me in my face, and it's probably because I'm at the center of all these brands. Where that's called what it is. I'm trying to make some partnerships and some deals happen, and I'm right. realizing that they're like, "Oh no, this is amazing. We just don't even know what the hell I'm even looking at." Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, "Oh, I assumed you did. <laughs> mm. You know, uh, we don't. Even, they're like, we don't even know how to practically use this." my CFO that I have to get budget from is going to look at this like, like I'm crazy. Like this looks like it's a different language on the screen. Um, What are are your thoughts on all of that?
0: Yeah, man. I, you know, I come from a point of building relationships to understand, okay, what is, what will make sense, (laughs) right? Like what will help you understand and, and recognize the importance and the value of this work when it, as a C-suite executive and um, those type of conversations don't happen or are very difficult to happen day one, especially if you step into a role as a DEI practitioner in an organization that hasn't had one in a long time or one that has that level of access, right? Um, and, uh, And a lot of the work that needs to be done essentially is building relationships to understand what their priorities are, what they see and feel and think, and then find a way to infuse this language into the work that they're doing, or ask like Socratic questions to help draw out where they are when it comes to this journey. And so, um, I think it's a huge disservice if we are, I mean, depending on who you talk to. <laughs> uh, personally, I think it's a huge disservice to kind of to expect a C-suite executive to say, "Day one, you need to change your worldview and your mental in the way that you approach your work." And I mean, if we consider just even our own journeys, it it takes a while for us to grasp any concept and we have to have a level of human uh, psychology, which I d- I don't have a degree in, but it's also an area that I'm learning and understanding too of the human behavior, human psychology, of how people approach um, new concepts and change management. And, exp- and just because they're in a position that's often driving change doesn't necessarily mean that they are prepared to take that change upon themselves. So how do we um, again, learn the language, learn their perspective, and try to infuse this uh, DEIB into their work, but then um, sprinkle in either different voices or different people who have a relationship with the executive to also carry that level of understanding, too, Um, so that way it's being heard from multiple sides and multiple angles. Does that make sense? No, it
1: makes total sense, man. It makes total sense, and um, like I said, it's something that Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's, and to your point on like the human behavior side of things um, that you're learning, you know, that's, that's just the biggest thing that anyone listening, um, we have to start really, and here's another thing I actually want your feedback on. We have to start really uh, being excited about adopting and learning new things, but do, but, but actually realizing how learning. Actually, goes like learning, learning, learning something legitimately goes like this: you you read something, you go to an event, a keynote, a, a certification, and then you quite literally the next moment try to put something in place internally within the organization. So at the very least, you're teaching your brand and everyone else that's doing it how to actually experience what you learned, right? Like I'm like, and this is a whole another thing, but I'll just give this one high level point of view: like America, I believe not even America, just like regular, I guess, education period is really about um, memorizing something, taking a test, showing you can remember it for a bit of time, and then moving on from it and not applying it into your day-to-day work or your day-to-day efforts in, in life, right? And and that's not how the brain quite literally learns, like at a, at a neuroscience level, you have to apply yourself and and, and experience it. So um,
0: yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know
1: if you have any thoughts on like, you you learn stuff in the DE&I sector, you learn stuff for the talent and recruiting sector. Go try it literally next week inside of your company in some way, shape, form, or fashion, you know?
0: Yes. Yeah, actually, so so for those um in my office, I have a bookshelf and I'm trying to see if I have a book on there that kind of talks a bit about this, but uh, which is um, called The Pedagogy of the oppressed by Paulo Freire. Mm-hmm. And fascinating book because it talks exactly what you just stated about the education system. Um, and he uh, he's not even American, but he's just education itself, right, as a whole. But uh, two two lenses, one being the banking concept where it's just a deposit of information and like you said, the expectation to take the test and regurgitate that information, but it doesn't truly stick. You just in one year out the other, or the next year as you graduate on to the next year of your schooling. You know, hopefully that information compounds, but honestly, you probably forget <laughs> forgot a lot. So mm-hmm. you have to remember those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he proposes, and which I'm a true component of and has stuck with me for the past 15 years, is um this act of praxis where it's a circle, cyclical, cyclical action of reflection and action. So exactly what you just stated, where you reflect, you you uh input, take the inputs of DEIP, for example, or unconscious bias, or um, uh, understanding a new worldview and equity lens in, in the work that we do, you, you input that through a facilitator or a lesson or book or what have you. But in order for it to actually stick, and you have to immediately take action to um, see how it works in the real world. And then from that point, you reflect and see, okay, what worked, what didn't work, and then could do it again. And through that journey is how we can get quicker in our ability to uh, cognitively understand. Uh, have have an equity lens, or just any learning practice in general, um, and be able to shorten the learning curve towards creating that change that we want to see. Yeah, um, and that that has to be a part of the process. And that's something too, as a facilitator and as a as a coach, and on the on the end that is teaching and that's educating. Like I have to build that in as a part of my practice, to where I don't want to just talk at you for thirty minutes or forty five minutes or keynote or what have you. It's like, no, we gotta. We got a dialogue. Like, We got to talk about this. We got to reflect about this. We got to say, okay, now, what does this mean to you? Like, how do you see this concept of um, uh, reducing your unconscious bias, right? Or how do you call out bias or have accountability when it comes to uh, inequities in your in your community? Like, how do you see that and recognize that? Okay, so what's the one action you could take immediately? Yeah. Like right now. <laughs> so, so that way you can get, get in the habit of, Taking action, but over, you know, not seeing things as a failure, but seeing it as a lesson and learning through it um, because nobody's perfect and we got to work through it together to make it better.